You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Stick around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge. Thanks for tuning in. Now today we are going to dive right into the book of Ezra, starting with chapter 1. We're going to actually move through chapters 1 through 6. So I hope you packed a lunch. Uh, We're going to be here a while. All the kids were like, what? No. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, so, yeah, we Rob started us off last week with a bunch of context about Ezra and Nehemiah. And this week, we're going to actually get into the text, and we're going to start moving through this. But one of the things that we, we've pushed out as, a, as a, a useful help for understanding Ezra and Nehemiah is a link to the Bible Project video. For, this, uh, for these two books. Uh, Tim Mackey and his crew do an excellent job of putting together helpful resources uh, to understand these. And one of the things that they point out about these stories is that the front, uh, the front stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, these two books used to be one book together. Um, so when I'm referring to them that way, that's why I'm clumping them together. But these, the first part of these stories begin with Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, the stories of these three leaders. And if you've been in the church for a while, you're probably familiar with hearing about these talked about as like leadership stories and stuff like that, right? Or we're going to go build something. We're going to go do something because that's what they're doing. They've been called on a mission. But the the stories one through six and then six through, I think, 12-ish in the back half of Ezra and then the beginning of the book of Nehemiah follow this one pattern. And this pattern looks like this. The Persian king is moved by God to send people, okay? So God stirs the heart of a Persian king and he sends a group back to Israel, back to Judah. And then the leader of that group, ends up facing opposition to the rebuilding project. Whether they're trying to rebuild the temple, whether they're trying to rebuild their their practices and understand Torah, or whether they're trying to build walls around the city, they run into opposition. And then each of these stories, these sub-stories within the larger picture, has a strange anticlimax. They end badly. they just, they kind of, it's a bittersweet sort of ending with each of these kind of mini stories, right? It's, uh, <clears throat> I used the example last, uh, last service of the, the snap with Infinity War where it snaps and that's the end of the movie and you're like, well, that's not, that's not satisfying. And then you got to wait a whole nother year. Well, these guys had to wait a while too, I guess. So maybe that's not a terrible example, but just kind of a bittersweet ending for each of these stories. And they follow the same pattern. So I just wanted you to be aware of, of this is the pattern that we're going to keep seeing. So let's jump into, <clears throat> let's jump into Ezra chapter one, verses one through four. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Pause. This is a hyperlink. This is a click here to learn more, right? If this was Wikipedia, I would fall down a huge rabbit trail and end up on learning about betta fish. It always comes back to that. But <laughs> but I would go through many things involving, you know, I'd start with Jeremiah and then I'd go to another prophet and then I'd go to some ge- geography thing. And, you know, it's this is a hyperlink that points you back to Jeremiah. Okay. 
And since all of us have Jeremiah memorized, we don't need to go back there, right? Oh, I'm kidding. We're not actually going to go back to Jeremiah because we have so much to cover today. We're not going to, I'm just going to summate that for you here in a minute. But this is a hyperlink that says we need to know what God told Jeremiah was going to happen. Okay. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house to the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. All right. So the house of God, it's in Jerusalem. He says that a couple times. This is redundancy, department of redundancy. But a couple of things that we should get out of this. One, if you're familiar with the Exodus story, this should be ringing a bell of like, oh, wait, leave. a king tells people to leave, and then they're going to get silver and gold, and then they're going to go back to, they're going to go to, the, to Israel, to their promised land. Hmm. This should remind you of Exodus. This should be really, really, really ringing that bell for you. Okay? Now, we talked about that in footnotes this week, so you can tune in. That's our, that's our extra podcast that comes out on Wednesdays uh, when I'm not late getting it out. Then it comes out on Thursdays. Um, but it should come out on Wednesday. Uh, what did, uh, but anyway, I digress. So we need to, we need to cue in on what was Jeremiah saying that was going to be fulfilled. Well, in the, in the book of Jeremiah, which is a collection of his writings and prophecies in the middle of it, middle ish chapter 30s, 30, 30s, 30 through 33, Jeremiah speaks of return to Israel he talks about returning to Israel. He talks about new covenants. He talks about returning to Israel. He talks about new covenants. This is a very happy, like, yeah, go get them part of the book of Jeremiah. Now, the rest of it is very doom and gloom. There's plenty of that because it's a prophet. And as a prophet, you have to have doom and gloom. It's required. It's in the handbook. Like, if you're going to be a prophet, you have to be doom and gloom, at least 50% of the time, minimum. Um, but what this does is it points us towards they're going to come out of exile and they're going to come back to the land and they're going to reestablish their kingdom and there's going to be the new kingdom of Israel and there's going to be new covenants and Messiah is what this is pointing towards. Jeremiah is pointing them towards Messiah. And, and part of Jeremiah is they're going, to, they're going to develop this new heart. Now, whether or not they get that, oh, we'll see. But Messiah is going to come. This is what they're expecting. This is, what, this is why they're leaving exile, so that the words of Jeremiah can be fulfilled. Now, we should probably clarify a couple things about just historical context between Persia and Babylon. Okay? Now, when Israel was removed, when Judah came in, and, or when Judah was removed and sent into exile, it was Babylonian exile. Babylon came in and they 
kind of annihilate everyone. This is their standard practice. They're going to come in and dominate and just wipe everything out. And then they're going to take people out of the land and they're going to take them captive. This is how Babylon functions. Okay. This is how they conquer. <clears throat> Persia is a little different. They take more of a Greek Western approach that was starting to get popular at the time. Uh, we'll call it colonialism, uh, where they come in and they, they understand that it's much cheaper, much more economical, that if we're going to have an overthrow and we're going to conquer and we're going to expand our kingdom, well, you know, we came in and we were bigger and meaner than you. So why don't we just keep you where you're at and you pay tribute to us, right? We're going to keep you there and you're much more beneficial if you are thriving and just sending us all the money, right? Perfect. Perfect. So this is how Persia approaches things. So when Persia comes in and kicks Babylon out, they say, well, the Persian king's going to look around and say, what are all of these people doing here? Go back to your homelands, right? Which is what we see God is working through the Persian king here to send them back so that they can rebuild. This is, how we, this is why we see what's going on here, okay? Now, the rest of chapter one is a group of people, the, the group of people pack up, and then they gather funds, which is all the gold and silver and, and all this stuff. And uh, then they head out on their trip, <clears throat> right? And now logically, we're going to need to know, the next thing we're going to need to know is who heads out on this trip. So we come to chapter two, possibly the most thrilling chapter out of these six. Uh, Ezra chapter two, verse one. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Now, I'm going to decimate these names, so I apologize in advance. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigva, Rehum, and Bana. That was way better than first service. It was so bad. <laughs> Uh, I hit a Sarai, I'm probably still not saying that right, but at least it sounded good this time. So you guys lucked out. Second service, killing it. Uh, plenty of names in this section uh, because the rest, of, the rest of this is just a snooze fest. Um, if you need something to put you to sleep, I suggest studying this passage. It's a census, which is riveting. Um, I'll spark note it for you. The important part that we're going to pull out today is a little over 40,000 people made the journey. Okay? A little over 40,000. 40, I think it's 42, something or another, and then they bring some slaves, and it probably brings it up to about 45-ish. Um, but this would have been a small fraction of the people that were in Babylon. Okay? This, the, the exile to Babylon, there was a whole lot more there, and they'd been growing as a people, Zerubbabel, his, uh, his name actually means planted in Babel, like planted in Babylon, seed of, so he was born in Babylon. He's this next generation that has been growing up in captivity. <clears throat> okay. So about 40,000, small faction. This reminds me of a church plant. Like I was reading this and I'm just like triggered. <laughs> ah, fundraising. <laughs> They had it so much easier. Rob, we got to figure out what they're doing. Anyway, uh, <laughs> a 
So we're introduced to the heroic leader of this story, though. This, this Zerubbabel, or Zebabs, as I keep abbreviating it. Um, so we're introduced to Zerubbabel here and the rest of his people. <clears throat> now we come to Ezra 3. And in Ezra chapter 3, they, they begin their mission. <clears throat> and the first thing they do is they rebuild the altar. And they celebrate, I believe it's the Feast of Booths off the top of my head that they celebrate. And they start reestablishing some, wor- uh, some rhythms of worship, right? We're going we're gonna to set up the altar. We're going to do some sacrifices. We're going to celebrate this religious festival. And then they start to build the temple. And they're very, very careful. They get all of the stuff for the temple. They're going to do a great job. They, they get the stuff for the temple just like David did. They're specific, and it mentions specifically where they're getting all of the items, and they're rebuilding it just like it was. We're going to do this just right, okay? Because we want to bring, bring about the second, we're going to bring about this new kingdom. We're going to bring about new covenants, so the words of Jeremiah are fulfilled. Um. <clears throat> So they lay the foundations for the temple in chapter three, and then they celebrate, as you should do, like we're barn raising sort of style. And then Ezra chapter four comes along, and they run into opposition. Remember the pattern? They're called and sent, then there's opposition, and then awkward ending. So Ezra chapter four, one through five, Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ershahad, uh, nope, Asar Hadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. There are so many fun names in this, like, oof. Yikes. If you're pregnant, consider Er Sahadan. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land which would be the the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, changes what they're called, discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose, a.k.a. bureaucratic red tape. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay? So what just happened in this passage? Because there's this, Ezra 4 gets a little bit, it gets a little muddy, Okay, uh, the rest of chapter four, up until the very last verse, is actually the center of the chiasm that is chapters one through six. Surprise, you didn't see that coming. The whole thing's a chiasm. Uh, so there you go. But cha- uh, verses six through 23 is actually out of the chronological order. And Ezra does this a couple of times. The writer, the author of Ezra does this on occasion, and it's, it's because they're, they're making, they're trying to bring attention to things, right? One of the things that they do is up there at the beginning uh, of chapter four, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, he calls them adversaries from the very beginning. The first time that they're mentioned in this story, they're adversaries. But what have they done? 
right? What are, or what are they doing? They come and they offer to help. That doesn't sound like an adversary, right? Like, that doesn't sync up, does not compute, buffering, right? <clears throat> and, then, and then it calls them the people of the land. So little context here. Uh, some of your Bibles might link you back to a story in 2 Kings chapter 17, I believe, <clears throat> uh, which is a super fun story. Uh, the king of Assyria took over the northern kingdom of Israel, Right? And what the Assyrian king would do, he's, he's kind of in between the Persians and the Babylons. He's like, he's like Babel in that he's going to take everybody out. So he removes all of the people of Israel. And then he sends back in other people just to go like repopulate the land. And now you're going to take over this land, right? So these people move in, the people of the land. This is who we're talking about now. And uh, then they start getting eaten by lions, as you do, uh, because they're, you know, not the people, you know, God sends a bunch of lions to eat them. It's a fun story. Uh, so then uh, the king, because, you know, it's really hard to pay your taxes and give tribute if you're getting eaten by lions. The king decides, well, okay, logically, they're getting eaten by lions because they're not worshiping the God of their land properly. There's a God tied to that land, so they need to learn how to worship him. So I'm going to send a priest. So he sends a priest in, and that priest teaches them how to worship Yahweh. All right. Um, but caveat, they start worshiping the Lord, but they also worship all of their other gods too, which they didn't know any better, I guess. You know, it's, but you know, so at least they stopped getting eaten by lions, but they've got this messy, they've got this really broken theology, if you want to put it in modern terms. Their, uh, their doctrines are a disaster, and they're a mess, and they don't understand God, and they worship these things that they shouldn't worship, and it's just, they're just messy people. And so these messy people in chapter four of Ezra approach Zerubbabel and those guys that are building the temple, and they say, oh, hey, that's our God that we worship, that, so we don't get eaten by lions. That's their God that we worship. We want to help with that, right? And they get the stiff arm. Zebabs is like, no, you have nothing to do with this. Get out of here, right? Do you see the tension in that decision? There's, there's a tension there that we have to wrestle with today. <clears throat> and because of that, because he's chosen to make them an enemy, we get this next section in chapter 4, 6 through 23, where it pulls out and it says this, this opposition continues for years because it fast forwards uh, and it talks about, you know, it even forcefully coming against them. Well, that, that's up with Nehemiah and the walls. Like, we're not even there yet. We're going to get there in a couple of weeks where like there's a sword in one hand and a hammer in the other, right? This is later on. This continues this decision to keep them out, make them an enemy, has ripple effects through over like 70 years or something like that, okay? <clears throat> but the temple, the building on the temple is stopped for 15 years. That they're, they're caught up in bureaucratic red tape for 
15 years and they're not, Zerubbabel's like, they're not doing their mission, okay? Which brings us to chapter five. So if you're stuck in the muck and, and building has ceased and your mission has kind of come off the wheels and things aren't going right, what do we need? Well, we need a pep talk. So, beginning of chapter five. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, son of Iddo, I like that name. I can pronounce that one well. <laughs> Prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. All right. So Haggai and Zechariah, they're going to be our cheer squad. They're going to give us, they're going to be the coach in the locker room at halftime saying, no, we're going to get back on the horse here, right? And they're going to give them this pep talk with their prophecy, okay? Now, this would be another hyperlink because when you mention Haggai and Zechariah and their prophecies, then you would go back and read those, right? We're not going to go through all of them, but we are going to look at one excerpt from Zechariah that I feel is very important to what we're talking about today. Chapter 8, verses 20 through 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. This is like we're gonna we're gonna get this built we're gonna get this all built we're gonna reestablish this is more like Jeremiah like covenant and kingdom and we're gonna be the shining example blessing to all nations take us right back to Abraham right blessing to all nations this is what we're gonna be guys many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord thus says the Lord of hosts. In those days, 10 men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Yeah, that sounds like the covenant. That sounds like a blessing to all nations. That sounds like a shining city on a hill, if you will. Yeah, this is what we're going to build, guys. All nations. Now, that doesn't sound like stiff-arming the people with the messy theology. Rob had an interesting, interesting way of putting this. Uh, it's almost like they get put in timeout after this occurs. God puts them in timeout for 15 years. They have to kind of relearn the lesson, maybe. But Nonetheless, work resumes, pep talk works, building project commences. Uh, actually, it, it commences kind of a uh, little sneaky in how they do it. They just kind of, it's more of like, let's ask for forgiveness rather than permission. Um, so they get maybe a more favorable governor and uh, there's questions, they start building it and then the, they're like, what are you doing? Why, who said you could do this? And they're like, well, Cyrus, and they send this letter, and we're going to read this letter in our care groups this week in chapter five. We're going to read chapter five and dig into that more there, so beef up on that before you go. 
But they send word to Darius to look for this decree. We're going we're gonna to look for this decree of Cyrus that gave us permission, like we're supposed to be doing this. And they just keep doing it while they're waiting for the response, which is something I would totally do. So I can't judge them on that. Like that's, that's just shrewd and brilliant, um, basically is what's going on there. Uh, so they send off this letter and uh, chapter six starts here. Darius looks for a record and he finds the original decree. Uh, Rob's, the best way to explain this is the, uh, when Gandalf in Lord of the Rings goes and is digging through the like papers down in the bottom of Gondor in Minas Tirith, looking for, you know, digging through scrolls and blowing off the dust. They've completely forgot about this decree of Cyrus and finally they find it. And they're like, yep, you're supposed to be doing this. And so Darius, in the second year of his rule, uh, says, yep, they're supposed to be doing this. He sends back a favorable letter for it, right? He sends word that everyone is supposed to stop getting in the way of the project under exceedingly harsh penalty. Uh, it's kind of fun. They're like, if you, uh, if you get in the way of this, then we're going to take a beam from your roof and we're going to impale you on it. So stop getting in the way of this. Uh, there's just a little bit of, you know, maybe you shouldn't do that. So once again, God stirs the heart of a king and works through that, through this pagan king. Hmm. And the story ends with the completion of the temple. All right. And then they celebrate Passover. More Exodus imagery. Like that's the perfect, how else would you finish this? Of course you're going to finish with Passover. That's perfect, Right. <clears throat> but this is kind of an awkward resolution. Something still seems a little off. And it's maybe, it's, it's, it's maybe a little difficult to catch because, once again, the chronology of this story gets a little wonky. But there's this one little thing in chapter 3. So we're going to go back there real quick. Chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, this is when they're celebrating the, the laying of the foundations when this falls. Old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The, the older generation, the heads of the fathers' houses, those ones that they remembered what it could have been, they knew that the presence of God wasn't there. Something is amiss in this. Something's not right. The heart is not right in this project. It looks just like the one, you know, they're doing everything right physically to build this thing, but there's something not right here. Something, something that Jeremiah said was going to happen hasn't happened. Something's wrong with the foundations, and that never gets fixed. Furthermore, the words of Zechariah 
aren't happening because that, that, that adversary, that opposition continues. It doesn't get resolved. They don't, oh yeah, no, we should have brought you in. It never gets resolved. It continues all the way up through Ezra and through Nehemiah. And it keeps being an issue, a thorn in the side. This is not seeming like many nations. This is not a blessing to all. This is something's not right, which is why we get this awkward resolution to the story. Because yes, we built a temple, but its foundations were bad. So that brings us to our our implication this week. Uh, The main point, the blueprint, if you will, which is avoiding messy people does not usher in God's presence. God shows up when we engage the mess and invite him into it. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't go into the mess if, we're, if we don't invite him. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying here is that we're a conduit. If we're going to be a royal priesthood, we're grafted in. Zerubbabel should have been a light. He should have brought God into that situation and cleaned up those messy people's theology. This is, this is what we really would have wanted to see. This would have been a change of heart. Not just, it would have been healing. It would have been bringing shalom, bringing peace, and putting the world back together. This is what Abraham's people are supposed to do. We don't see that happen. Instead, we see him avoiding the messy people, and that doesn't usher in God's presence. So we have to engage the mess so that we can be a conduit, so that we can be a representative of God in the mess. So what does that look like? What are some steps that we can take to engage the mess? What do you need to do if you're going to do that? Well, the first thing that you need to do, that you have to do, is you have to engage with your Messiah. Nothing else you do matters if you don't develop your relationship with your Savior. If you are not connected to God, if you are not working on that relationship, everything else you do is not going to bear fruit. Not going to bear good fruit. Everything in your life will grow and develop out of this. You can't be an emissary for God in the mess if you aren't engaging with God. I can't get into messy situations and minister to people if I'm not letting God minister to me. Like that's, you just have to have that. Everything else follows after that. Now, what does that look like? What does it mean to engage your Messiah? It means setting aside time in your week. I would suggest that it begins with setting aside time for Sunday worship. We, we see that's the first thing that Zerubbabel and the people do, is they establish weekly, they, well, weekly, they establish their worship rhythms, Right? As a community, they establish that we're going to come together and we're going to worship and we're going to celebrate and we're going to interact with God as a community. 
Other things that would engage with your Messiah would be Bible reading, prayer, Sabbath, fellowship with believers. Like these are all these are all things that are going to help you engage with your Messiah. I think that most of them, uh, if they're not necessary to have community, then they're at least supplemented by involving community in that, which is why we're so big on care groups. You're going to engage your Messiah by digging into the text, by wrestling with it, by worshiping together, by coming together for fellowship, by encouraging each other. This is what care groups, this is what life-transforming groups do. This is why we are so heavy on these things. We just keep beating that drum, and you're like, when are you going to stop talking about care group? We won't, ever. Maybe next Tuesday. We'll take a break. That's the only time. Um, the next thing that you can do, you grow deep roots. Now, that first one, engage with your Messiah, that one, everything else hinges on that. So you, you got to get that right. Now, these next couple ones, you can put them in whatever order you want. But growing deep roots. If you're, in, if you're going to engage the mess, then you need to be a positive influence, right? And in order for me to be a positive influence, in order for you to be a positive influence, then you need to make sure that you aren't swept up in the mess, right? We need to be deeply rooted in our convictions, in our faith, in our relationship with God, in our relationship with others, you have to grow deep roots. Now, this looks like deepening your understanding of the word. Everything that I just listed, the Bible reading, prayer, Sabbath, fellowship, worship, it, it's not like you, oh, you got your merit badge and now, yep, you've worshiped. No, you continue. You do more worship. You continue to dig in Good Lord, there is so much stuff in Ezra and Nehemiah. I had no idea. You know, we keep saying, we keep calling things pound cake, Rob. You know, we call Jonah pound cake. We're like, there's so much here. We call the Lord's Prayer pound cake. There's so much here. I think the Bible is pound cake. Um, I don't think we're going to find anything that doesn't have so much depth to it. All of the hyperlinks, for crying out loud, you got to read like six books just to understand what's going on. You can never, like, the day that I'm not impressed and I'm not learning things from diving into the Word and growing deeper in that, somebody check my, check my pulse. Like, that's, it's, it's going to be a bad day when that, when that occurs, or a good day. <clears throat> the other thing that, that you can do to grow your deep roots is you can develop accountability. Part of this is if I'm going to engage the mess, then I need, I need people that are looking out for me, right? Because you don't want to go this alone. They take 40,000 people, Z-Babs and Co. I love it. I'm going to get that on a T-shirt. <laughs> Z-Babs and Company. This is not meant to be something that you do alone. This is community. Once again, care group, life-transforming group, any other relational environment, they're kind of important because engaging the mess alone is dangerous. It is. It's really easy to get swept up in the mess as opposed to bringing God 
into the mess and being firmly rooted there. Next thing that we can do is we can talk about your mess in community. We can talk about your mess. You can talk about your mess in community. Uh, I can talk about my mess. You can talk about your mess. We'll talk about the mess, and it'll be community. Uh, Shame tells us that we need to retreat from community because that's the thing. Like, I can can say, like, oh, yeah, I need to go into the mess. (sighs) I've got mess in my own life. I've I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that most of you guys do too, other than Josh, who might be perfect, right? Yeah? No? Oh, that was last week? No, I don't know. He's giving me an incredulous stare. All right. Um, So this also applies to like my own mess, your own mess, right? Because Zerubbabel, he didn't have it all figured out. Like obviously, they got put in timeout for 15 years. There's some heart issues. There was some mess that needed to be dealt with. It wasn't just like, oh, the messy people over there. No. We need to talk about our mess in community. Inviting others into your mess allows God to work through them to bring healing. I need healing in my life. I need to bring people in that God can work through to deal with the stuff and my baggage, right? And then last, we can listen to wise counsel. When you talk about your mess in community, then you develop this ability to listen to wise counsel. Okay? Just as Zerubbabel needed the prophets, there's going to be times when you need people speaking into your life. Now, hopefully... You've developed those relationships before fit hits the shan, before things get messy and you get put in timeout for 15 years, right? Hopefully you've developed these relationships so that you can say, this is the mess and somebody can speak into that and you've developed that, right? Now we've got this rule in care group of no fixing. You might be like, but Logan, wise counsel is fixing, ish. It's a fuzzy gray area. No, this doesn't break the no fixing rule. I'm inviting the wise counsel. If I'm sharing in the mess and I say, Rob, this is what's going on. What the heck do I do? That's not Rob fixing me, at least against my will or making me feel bad and shutting me down or, you know, anything like that, that the no fixing rule talks about. This is me inviting in wise counsel. You should be inviting these people to give you advice. You should be developing these relationships, whether that's a mentor, whether that's somebody discipling you, whether that's just a co-laborer, somebody that's making disciples along with you, can come from various areas. Heck, wise counsel can come out of the mouths of kids sometimes, many times. Most of the time? I don't, maybe. No, Jack says no. No. <laughs> Some of the time. We'll, set, we'll settle there. But you need to be inviting these voices in. And this only happens in community. So engage with your Messiah. Grow deep roots. Talk about your mess. Listen to wise counsel. 
So I leave you with this question today of which, which of these, which of these is your next step? Which of these do you need to work on? All of them is the right answer. Which of these do you need to work on first? Because you, wait, all of them, you're going to bite, the, you're going to eat the entire elephant all at once. All right. Scout's going to go for it. <laughs> Jeez. It's a big elephant. Uh, I'm going to take it step by step, um, just me personally. But which of these can you work on? What do you need to work on this week that's going to help you engage your Messiah? What do you need to work on this week that's going to help you talk about your mess in community? or listen to wise counsel, or deepen the roots that you have. Because that's what's going to let us get into the mess and engage it in a way that's going to bring God into that. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a new church in Missoula, Montana. If you're in the Missoula area, we would love to have you join us for worship on a Sunday. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church forward slash give. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you have a blessed week. We'll catch you on the flip side.